This week, can the sun be used to treat jaundice in babies in low resource settings? Can text messages help people live a healthier lifestyle? Hello, and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at healthydebate.ca. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto. And today I am joined by my friend Fahad Razak, who is a staff internist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. Hey, Fahad, how are you? Hey, Amol. Great to be with you again. All right. It's good to have you as always, Fahad. So, Fahad, why don't we just dive right in today? We have two really interesting articles. Uh, And so our first article this week is about using sunlight to treat jaundice in babies in Nigeria. So tell me about this study, Fahad. Thanks, Amal. So this study was published by Slusher and colleagues in the New England Journal. And the major finding is that they found that filtered sunlight is equivalent to conventional phototherapy in treating infants with elevated bilirubin levels. And this is a critically important finding, especially for low-income settings where phototherapy units may not be accessible or a realistic uh, mechanism of therapy. What did we know before this study? How are we treating jaundice in low-resource settings? So I think the first question is, why do we care about jaundice in babies? And uh, globally, if you look at severe elevations in bilirubin right right after birth, it impacts about half million infants annually. And of these, more than 100,000 die as a complication of elevated bilirubin or jaundice. And the other reason to focus on this is that of the babies that survive, so as I said, a half million uh, per year are affected, 100,000 die. um, A further 60,000 who live, live with either moderate to severe neurocognitive disability. So this is a high burden condition. Um, so high bilirubin itself, how does it cause damage? Well, it leads to bilirubin-associated encephalopathy, and it's more severe form. It's called kernicterus, and this is what results in the long-term damage. So about three-quarters of the affected infants live in low- and middle-income countries, and conventional phototherapy is probably just not a realistic way of treating these infants. There's a lot of reasons why it's not. It's quite expensive. Even where units are available, they're of inferior quality. And then there's the problem of electricity. A lot of low- and middle-income countries just don't have reliable electricity supply. So what are we doing currently to treat jaundice in low- and middle-income countries? So what they do is where available, they use units. Um, Where levels are severe, they try and transport infants to centers where there are these units. And the truth is, this is not very effective. Treatment is needed acutely. It matters how quickly bilirubin drops. It really makes a difference whether it drops within hours to days at the most. And you can imagine situations where children either can't get to one of these treatment centers or a lot of damage is done by the time they get there. Yeah, absolutely. So this obviously is a a large public health problem. A major problem. Okay. So what was this study and what's the innovation here? So this study uh, built on prior research from both this research group and other researchers that's shown that, in fact, sunlight can be an effective way of treating elevated bilirubin in infants. The only problem is, is that with exposure to full sunlight, you have other potential harmful effects on the infant, for example, hyperthermia and exposure to UV radiation. Sure. And sunburns? And sunburns, exactly. So things that would limit effective therapy with just sunlight. Right. And so how do you get around that? 
So these researchers, along with other research groups, have been developing films that can be used to filter sunlight, allowing the helpful blue wavelength light through. This is the wavelength of light that treats the elevated bilirubin level, but filtering out the harmful elements of sunlight, for example, UVA or UVB. I have to say, I don't think I've even ever really heard of blue wavelength light. Yeah, so just think of about just think of it as one spectrum of sunlight. But if you do remember back to your pediatric rotations, you would remember that the babies are in blue light. If you can remember, if that. if I remembered is the key. But okay, so uh, we we're trying to filter out the sunlight and bathe the babies in blue light. Uh, and so this filter is difficult to produce, easy to produce. Is it expensive? So I can't comment on the technical innovation required, but they've been able to produce it at extremely low cost. So but one of the things that the study mentions in the discussion is that this light can now be purchased on the open market at about $1 per square foot. And that means that you could build a canopy big enough to shield about eight mothers with their babies for between $40 to $120, depending on the film that's chosen. So quite cost effective. And if you want to compare that against conventional phototherapy, that's about $3,000 per unit. And then that's still not accounting for all the other problems with electricity, replacing bulbs, et cetera. Wow. So that's a dramatically different cost point. How do these units look? Just looking at the New England Journal's website, they have a little picture of a baby in a crib covered by one of these films. But the way you're speaking, it sounds like it's almost an entire room for the mothers and their children. So this study was done uh, around that crib idea. Imagine a crib, but instead of an open top, they've stretched this film over the top. But one of the things- Like a a sunroof. Basically like a sunroof. But one of the things they discuss is that this technology could be used for, for example, a canopy. And if you use it in a canopy, it would allow the mother to stay with the baby and all the other benefits that we know that happens because of mother-baby bonding, skin-to-skin contact and care, et cetera. So this technology could be easily scaled up. So this sounds like a pretty amazing piece of technology. So how did they study it and what did the study show? So this study took place in Nigeria and they looked at infants who were up to 14 days of age and were at least least 35 weeks gestational age. And they included most infants with the major exclusion criteria that if the infant had less than 24 hours of of life expectancy, they weren't included in this trial. If they had severe concurrent illness, they weren't included. And if they had dramatically elevated bilirubin on presentation, so more than 250. And I have to say that's a crazily high level, something we'd rarely see even in adults. Why would they exclude that group? Those would be the kind of infants that would be transferred with high acuity towards a center that could provide conventional treatments of phototherapy, and they didn't want to fool around with sunlight therapy if they didn't know it was effective. So, you know, at the point that this trial is done, there's still equipoise. Right. So they randomly allocated among these infants who would receive filtered sunlight or conventional phototherapy, and this was designed as a non-inferiority study. Uh, As I said, the problem with sunlight, one of the major problems is hyperthermia. So the children are getting more exposure to sunlight and they can heat up. And they treated that with white wetted towels if needed and temporary removal from phototherapy if needed. If the babies had severe hyperthermia or had bilirubin that was worsening, requiring an exchange transfusion, then they were withdrawn at the study at that time. And that was one of the, uh, what, that was one of the endpoints that they looked at. And the primary endpoint for efficacy was decline of bilirubin within a target range. And a secondary endpoint was need for exchange transfusions. So before we jump into talking about the results, I want to just ask, were they using the new screen technology only in 
the medical centers where they already had phototherapy or were they using it in centers where you would ultimately want to be using it where they didn't have that kind of phototherapy technology? Uh, the, the latter, that's right. So they used this in centers where you couldn't reasonably expect to have access to phototherapy. Okay, so that helps with the generalizability or feasibility of this aspect of the study. That's right. And it also helps with the ethical rationale for the study as well. Absolutely. Okay, so what did they find? So major finding in an intention to treat analysis was that filtered phototherapy, so the films, was as efficacious as phototherapy units, 93% versus 90%. And in terms of adverse outcomes, no infants required exchange transfusions in either group and not met criteria for withdrawal at any point in the study. Now, they did have some hyperthermia in the in the children treated with, with sunlight phototherapy. So temperature exceeded 38 degrees Celsius about 5% of the time in this group, but that was treated through the mechanism that I said. So white wetted towels and did not require withdrawal from the study. In comparison, this only occurred about 1% of the time in conventional phototherapy. Wow. I mean, this seems like a pretty dramatic finding. Is Are there any limitations or anything you want to discuss red flags about the study before we start gushing about how amazing this is? Yeah, I think it's time to gush. I mean, this is an amazing study. It, it makes me think about our recent Valsalva study where they picked a really important and common problem, and then they came up with a solution that was both very effective, low cost, and easily generalizable. So really impressive. Yeah. And you can ima imagine this technology just completely spreading across low and middle income countries where there is adequate sun exposure. Okay. So Fahad, why don't you wrap up and summarize the study? Thanks, Amal. So this really remarkable study showed that using a low cost sun filtering device is an effective way of treating elevated bilirubin in infants. This is a technology that could be used probably immediately in most low-income settings. And as you mentioned, who knows, maybe something that we'll see in our high-income countries as well down the road. Our second article this week is the effect of a text message intervention to help people live healthier lifestyles. Chow and colleagues in JAMA published a randomized control trial that showed that a text message intervention can help people reduce cholesterol, increase physical activity, lose weight, and smoke less. So that sounds like an amazing uh, range of positive improvements. This sounds like the fountain of youth. Is that what the trial was called? Actually, the trial was a little bit more pragmatically named. It was called the Text Me Trial. But they did also mention that the, the text messages make you taller and more handsome. So it's a pretty amazing intervention as well. Sounds amazing. So tell me what the background was. What did they know before they did this trial? I've heard of other text message-based studies. Have they been effective? You're right. There are, have been other text message-based interventions, sort of relatively recent studies about this. So there have been a number of randomized trials demonstrating that mobile phone text messaging can help people quit smoking. There have been a number of small randomized trials that have shown improvements in weight loss, improvements in physical activity, uh, adherence to medications. So certainly there is some preliminary or early evidence that text message-based interventions can be effective for a wide range of health behaviors. So it seems like these authors then took all of the individual elements that have been shown to change and then went after all of them in one study. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So this was a study that tried to address multiple lifestyle and risk factors at once through of a sort of tailored, semi-personalized text messaging intervention. Okay, so I imagine they focused on a high-risk population. How did they do this study? Yeah, so this study was based out of one 
Academic Center in Sydney, Australia. And if, Fahad, as I'm sure you listened to our podcast from last week, uh, Nathan and I talked about another breast cancer population messaging counseling study also from Australia. So it seems like the Australians are really into the population-based messaging right now. Yeah, pretty interesting. Pretty interesting. So what did they do here? In this study, they enrolled 710 patients who had documented coronary heart disease, which was defined as a prior myocardial infarction, coronary bypass, previous coronary intervention, or at least 50% stenosis in at least one major coronary vessel. They excluded patients who didn't have a mobile phone or could not speak English well enough to understand the text messages. And then they randomized those patients to either usual care, which was the control group, or the intervention group, who also got usual care, but also received 96 text messages over the span of six months, which ends up being four messages per week. The messages were sent at random times during working hours and on four random days a week. And the messages were semi-personalized. So they used sort of like a mail merge function where for some of the messages, people's names was inserted into the message. And the messages gave advice, motivation, information, targeted towards diet, activity, and smoking cessation, as well as general well-being. And so in this intervention, what were their primary outcomes? It couldn't have been cardiac events, because I would imagine you would need a long time in large numbers. So did they look for surrogate outcomes? Yeah, that's right. So they looked at surrogate outcomes. The first outcome that they chose, they wanted to also choose objective outcomes, because as a result of the text message intervention, you can't really blind participants, right? So uh, they chose an objective measure, which was LDL cholesterol at six months after the intervention began. Their secondary outcomes were systolic blood pressure, BMI, physical activity, smoking, etc. And do you know why they pegged their trial around cholesterol alone as opposed to all four outcomes? So they also looked at all four outcomes as a combination score. And they looked at sort of whether people achieved modification along the four outcomes. And I'm not really sure why they chose to do one or the other. It may have been a, a, a power-related question. Um, it might have been that they wanted to really just focus on one hard objective outcome uh, to get around some of the potential biases. But I'm not sure. It's, a, it's an interesting choice because if you thought about these outcomes ahead of time, Cholesterol and blood pressure are the ones that we have, you know, pretty remarkable medication for now. And those are medications that everyone is going to get. So your your effect in this trial would be have to be above and beyond what these very powerful medications will do. As opposed to, for example, BMI, physical activity or smoking, where other than counseling, we really don't have great other treatments. I take that back a little bit. We do for smoking, but for physical activity and BMI, we don't have any conventional pharmacotherapy yet that's used. Yeah, I would agree with you, although part of the intervention includes messages that remind people to take their medications, right? So improving adherence to medications would, and maybe that was one of the things that they thought they could really move the needle on. Oh, great point. Okay. So I'll, I'll give you an example of some of their text messages, because I think they're illustrative to listen to, if not interesting as well. Um, and I'll use the names of our podcast co-hosts just to mix it up a little. So here's the text message. Fahad, try identifying the triggers that make you want a cigarette and plan to avoid them. Hi, Janice. Don't forget physical activity is good for you. It reduces your risk of diabetes, heart attack, stroke, and their complications. 
So you can see that they're sort of short, relatively positive, but very simple, easy to understand messages. Yeah, and they were they were presumably targeted towards that individual. That's right. So they did surveys at baseline and looked at individuals' risk factors. So if someone, for example, was vegetarian, they wouldn't get any text messages around reducing meat intake. Or if they were not a smoker, they wouldn't get any of the smoking-related messages. That's right. And if this was really done on me, you would have said, Fahad, stop eating potato chips. <laughs> <laughs> and cheese. And so cheese. here's what they found. At six months, based on the primary outcome, they found that the intervention group had an LDL cholesterol level of 79 versus uh, the control group had an LDL level of 84 uh, or 2.18. It was a statistically significant difference. Statistically significant, but clinically very modest, right? Yeah, I would agree with that. Like, I think if we were looking at uh, 2.18 and 2.04 in our SI units, you would group those clinically in the same category. That's right. But at a population level, probably has some relevance. What about the other risk factors? Yeah. So if we look at their secondary outcomes, systolic blood pressure, uh, the difference was 128 in the intervention group as opposed to 136 in the control group. BMI was 29 versus 30.3. Uh, there was a pretty substantial difference in smoking, so 26% versus 43%. When they looked at some process measures, most of the people in the study reported that the text messages were useful, about 91%. They found them easy to understand, about 97%, and appropriate in frequency, about 86%. So generally well-tolerated, or it seems like people actually like them. Is that right? Yeah, people didn't mind them at least, and almost 80% found them to be motivating. So before we get to your takeaways, a few questions. So duration of effect, you know, what I would worry about is that there is a novel element to getting text messages, you know, so for the first few weeks, or a few months, you may think, hey, this is great. And then a few months in, you may think, God, I'm so irritated by these text messages. So how long did this effect last or did they even test that? So at this point, their follow-up was six to seven months. Uh, you know, their average follow-up was somewhere between six and seven months. So we don't know long-term effects. We also don't get a trend in time. Uh, over you know over those six months, so it's hard to say. But I totally agree with you. Based on my own usage of you know apps, for example, certainly I get excited about something for like a month or two months, and then tend to trail off. So it would be interesting to see the longer term effects. That said, the other question I had when you talked about inclusion criteria, you mentioned patients who either couldn't understand the text messages or didn't have a phone. That kind of hints at a strong socioeconomic bias. So what was the difference between participants and non-participants? Yeah, you raise a really good point. So they initially assessed 1,300 patients approximately for eligibility. Of those, 710 were randomized in the trial. So about 600 were excluded. So 600 out of 1,300, so roughly 45% or so, uh, were excluded from the trial. And of those who were excluded... About half of them were excluded because they did not own a mobile phone, and about a third were excluded because they were not proficient in English. So you're right, like uh, not an insubstantial number of people in this study that would have been otherwise eligible were excluded for reasons that one could chalk up to socioeconomic disadvantage or uh, perhaps age. Uh, so certainly equity is a really important consideration in these kinds of studies because 
such interventions, though effective for some people, might actually exacerbate inequality in society. Right. So, I mean, if you look at the numbers between the phone issue and proficiency in English, you're talking about one third of your total sample, right? We're excluded. So that's pretty dramatic. I, I totally agree with you. So I'm glad you raised it. So that said, pretty remarkable effect. So what's your major takeaway from this study? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple of uh, key takeaway points. The first thing I want to talk about is how this is clearly a new generation of studies using mobile messaging uh, to try to motivate health behavior change. And it seems like we have accumulating evidence that these interventions can be effective. The thing that I'm excited about and look forward to seeing is the next generation of these interventions that integrate even more advanced technologies. So for example, for this study, all of the data collection was still pretty old school, if you will. The patients had to come in, be assessed. Uh, None of the data collection really happened through the mobile platform. And you could imagine mobile data collection technologies, either through wearable devices or through patients being able to report, you know, their physical activity in real time or being able to report how they're feeling in real time and doing more of that sort of patient reported outcomes uh, that would really take this type of intervention to the next level. Yeah, I agree with you. That would be pretty exciting. I mean, we are firmly in the wearable technologies era now. One of the major advances in Apple's production line in this latest release of the iPhone was an entire suite of products and monitors centered on health monitoring. So I think we're there. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other thing that I think we're also firmly embedded in is the social network era. Uh, And, you know, understanding our health behaviors online is becoming increasingly sophisticated. And I would imagine that, so for example, in this study, they had to actively go out and measure baseline characteristics. Are you a smoker? Are you a vegetarian? You can imagine some kind of integration with someone's social media platform with their Facebook account or their Twitter account where those things would happen automatically through algorithms and you wouldn't necessarily even need to go out and and enroll people in the standard ways. Of course, that creates a bit of a scary big brother type of picture. I was going to say brave new world, and I don't mean that purely in a positive sense. Yeah. Okay. So having said all of that and excited to see how this kind of technology evolves, I think the major takeaway point from this study is that a text message-based intervention targeting multiple risk factors that was semi-personalized was shown to have a small but significant effect on LDL cholesterol and fairly impressive effects on other multiple coronary heart disease risk factors. Great. Fascinating study. This brings us to our Good Stuff segment. Fahad, tell me something short and sweet that caught your attention from the world of medicine this week. So I just read a pretty fascinating article in Science about how environmental pressures and specifically changes in food availability may have affected human evolution. So this study was done by a group of Danish researchers who've been studying the Inuit population for many years. And the Inuit have been of interest because their dietary diversity is so low. Much of their diet is centered around animal intake, such as whales, seals, or fatty fish. And these diets have been of interest for many, many years because the Inuit have also been observed to have low rates of heart disease. And one theory was that the omega fatty acids in these foods were protective. That led to a whole generation of randomized trials around omega fatty acids, which unfortunately were all found to be 
negative or potentially even harmful in these clinical trials. But that hasn't stopped a large percentage of the population from taking omega fatty acid supplements. What these researchers were interested in is how is it that Inuit can consume high levels of these fatty acids and yet have relatively normal levels of fatty acids in their blood. And what they found is that almost the entire Inuit population has a gene variant that allows them to process these fatty acids that results in their plasma levels being relatively normal. And what's interesting is that this gene mutation also results in Inuit populations being on average an inch shorter and 10 pounds lighter than people who don't have this gene mutation. Pretty amazing example about how looking at human populations who adapt to extreme environments can result in the identification of gene variants which have remarkable effects on human populations. Okay. So this week, for my good stuff, I want to direct people's attention to some coverage around the SPRINT trial. And I don't know if you heard about this, Fahad, in about mid-September, the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute widely declared and publicized that the SPRINT trial, which was looking at blood pressure targets, was stopped early because they found mortality benefit to having people on a more aggressive, lower blood pressure target than is currently recommended. Did you hear about this? I did. I mean, there was a huge spread about it in the New York Times, complete with videos and everything. So highly publicized. What's your take on it? So the thing that I find really interesting is that there was also a lot of criticism at that time about the fact that the trial and this result was so widely publicized. And yet, first of all, the study had not been published in any major peer-reviewed journal. The findings had not been really scrutinized publicly by the community of science. They reported only a relative risk reduction, which they said was almost a third uh, reduction in cardiovascular events and almost a quarter reduction in mortality. But we have no idea what the absolute reduction in risk is. We don't know anything about safety. We don't know anything about subgroups. So to me, it just felt like a bit of a premature announcement and giant rigmarole when, you know, certainly the prudent and cautious scientist, I think, would be a little bit skeptical of that kind of major announcement for something that has particularly incredibly important ramifications. Yeah, I totally get your point on that. So why do you think they had this aggressive rollout? I have no idea. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see. I mean, as you know, a significant proportion of the public health community is skeptical of stopping trials early in general, let alone highly advertised trials like this one. Absolutely. Okay. So it'll be interesting to watch this space. I'm sure it's a trial we'll cover in the in the weeks and months to come. So if you have no other reason to tune in, listen every week and ask, are we going to be covering the sprint trial? Looking forward to it. Okay. Thanks, Fahad. Pleasure to chat with you as always. Thanks, Amal. It was great to be here. <laughs>